I am Brother Cornell West. This is Chris Hedges. I'm Rosa Clemente. Hey, what's up? This is Chuck D, Public Enemy Prophets of Rage. And this is Newsbeat. Hey, everyone. This is Manny Faces, audio editor, producer, and host of the award-winning Newsbeat podcast. Welcome back to another episode. By now, faithful listeners know that we've tried our best to contextualize this country's mass incarceration crisis in ways that few mainstream outlets even attempt. We've covered everything from the draconian cash bail system and its perverted two-tiered system of justice to mental illness fueling incarceration rates, the prison abolition movement, how dragnet surveillance exacerbates racial inequities in policing, and much more. We've also covered America's ever-growing poverty crisis, which now encompasses more than 40 million people including about 12 million children. Well, this time we're examining the devastating link between the two, how poverty is criminalized in this country. The inspiration is a new report from the nonprofit Prison Policy Initiative, which did the hard work of digging through a government survey of those formerly incarcerated. Even for us, the findings are shocking. We'll leave the brutal figures to our two incredible guests, but the bottom line is if you're poor in America, you're more likely to end up behind bars. Even more so if you're also black or Latinx or Latino. Yes, in the so-called land of the free and the wealthiest nation on the planet, poverty is even a predictor of incarceration. And once locked up, you're more than likely to remain poor and caught up within this vicious, vicious cycle. Translating all the data for us to expose these horrible truths are Leah Wang, research analyst at the nonprofit Prison Policy Initiative, and Reza Rodriguez, Chief Program and Policy Officer at Anti-Poverty Policy and Advocacy Nonprofit, FPWA. Now, a quick reminder, sign up for our free Substack newsletter at newsbeat.substack.com for updates, new episodes, bonus content, and much more. Find out all about us at usnewsbeat.com, and we'd love to hear from you as well. Any comments, questions, suggestions for future episodes, shoot us an email at usnewsbeat at gmail.com. And give us a review wherever you listen to us. We appreciate you. For now, this is American Nightmare, the poverty to prison pipeline. Nationwide, there are over 7,000 prisons, jails, and detention centers 7, that make up the U.S. justice system with millions, millions incarcerated within it. There are about 2.3 million people incarcerated in the United States. That's more than the populations of Wyoming, Vermont, and Alaska combined. 1,291,000 people are incarcerated in state prisons, 631,000 in local jails, 226,000 in federal prisons, and 122,800 incarcerated in other detention facilities. Get, get, this. get this, about one out of every three Americans out of every three has Americans. an immediate family member immediate family who has member. been to prison or jail. In late 2020, early 2021, the federal government released a huge data set, the Survey of Prison Inmates, which was a survey conducted actually in 2016, uh, but it again was only released late 2020. And the reason it's so significant and we were so compelled to analyze it and report out on it is because it's a it's a self-reported demographic data set. So it's a survey of incarcerated individuals. A lot of data that we report on and that you all maybe hear about comes from administrative records. That's helpful to some extent, but to center incarcerated people in their own data allows for such rich questions about identity and upbringing that, again, 
we found in the report to have huge implications for connecting poverty and other disadvantage with ending up in state prison. The data ask questions about upbringing, again, about housing, poverty as it occurred in their childhood, and right before arrest, um, and educational attainment. And the numbers, even if you take them separately, are really astonishing. But altogether, it paints a pretty bleak picture. One thing that we looked into was housing. There are a few measures of homelessness and marginal housing that we kind of looked at separately and all together, and we found that about 20%, so one-fifth of people in state prisons, that's 200,000 people plus, were either homeless or in some sort of marginal housing in the, in the year before they entered state prison. And then in childhood, again, huge numbers. One in five was in public housing with their family before age 18. One in five was in foster care. And that goes hand in hand with the two in five people in state prison who were on welfare. These numbers are just really staggering. And for, for black incarcerated people, most of these figures were higher. So half of black incarcerated people were on welfare. Just really huge numbers of people, hundreds of thousands of people. We continue our look now at the challenges for those coming out of incarceration. After being released, many struggle to find housing, which in turn can prevent them from getting treatment for an addiction or a mental illness, securing a steady job, and ultimately staying out of jail. It's a situation made even harder by COVID-19. For four months, a makeshift loft under this North Austin bridge was home for Rachel Schuyler and her husband, Ian. It was hard to sleep in the bridge with the noise at first, but you kind of get used to it. It becomes like a white noise. The 30-year-old says she'd been homeless for five or six years when she was arrested in January for forging checks and sent to jail. Even though I got time served and I, I'm done, I'm not on probation, I've, I'm, my cases are finished, I'm still going to be punished for up to the next 10 years via I can't get a place to live or it's gonna be difficult for me to get a job to actually start a career. I've done my time and, and I'm, I've done my rehabilitation. A 2018 study by the Prison Policy Initiative found that formerly incarcerated people were nearly 10 times more likely to be homeless than the general population, especially upon release. And a 2019 study from the Texas Criminal Justice Coalition found that those who are homeless in turn are far more likely to be arrested for crimes like trespassing, panhandling, shoplifting, and assault. You know, it's not a matter of if you get arrested, it's a matter of when and then how long you're going to be gone. The vicious cycle of incarceration and homelessness isn't hard to find here. Well, these images say it all. We are in a crisis, and each one of these pictures is a different location in Los Angeles. Thanks to our circle of eyewitnesses, we have seemingly countless photos from underpasses, parks, and benches. By looking the other way, we have only allowed an epidemic to double in size in the last four years, and it's only getting worse. And this eyewitness news exclusive to better understand the problem, I take you not to our streets, but to jail. I would say most of these inmates in this module were homeless. That problem that we have on the streets, mm -hmm directly relates to what we have going on in the county jail. The survey looked at joblessness as well as a small measure of unemployment, and we like to show both of those measures because we often see the unemployment rate in, in headlines. Um, but most people did not have a job in the month before 
they came to prison. So about four in 10 people reported that they didn't have a job. Again, higher for black incarcerated people, closer to 50%. Um, women actually had over half of them did not have a job before, before their arrest. And among the people who weren't working before their arrest, a huge number were looking for work. And that's kind of how we measure unemployment in the US. So we calculated a 15% unemployment rate among the folks who were eventually headed to state prison. 15% might sound low, but if you keep track of unemployment rates, that's actually astonishingly high. It's almost unheard of. We saw it in the early pandemic when a lot of folks were getting laid off. We also saw it during the Great Depression. It's a remarkable statistic. 20.5 million Americans are out of work, numbers not seen since the Great Depression. Almost 15% of the country's workers looking for help from the government. But because of the way it's counted, the number is likely closer to 20% of the country's workforce out of their jobs. But again, in recorded history, we, we never see unemployment like that. There's also sort of a narrative that people who are disadvantaged, again, headed to state prison or formerly incarcerated, are disincentivized to work because of welfare programs. So there's a huge narrative around laziness or, again, disincentives against work because of social safety nets. And we found in multiple studies that this is absolutely not true. Formerly incarcerated people want to work. And in this data set, we found that among those who did work before their arrest, one in five were actually working two or more jobs. And that's a much higher rate than people in the U.S. who tend to work multiple jobs. In other studies, we found that, again, formerly incarcerated people are hustling just to put food on the table, make ends meet. They're working multiple jobs, too. And it's just it all busts the myth of the ways that we judge and stigmatize people with criminal justice involvement. Soup, soup, no soup, no soup, no soup, no soup, no soup. There is more than one epidemic in New York right now, and one is feeding the other. The economic carnage of COVID-19 has pushed homelessness to record levels. No soup. There is more homelessness in this city than at any time since the Great Depression of the 1930s. The worst hit by far have been black and brown people. You've written that where children grow up shapes their prospects as adults. Explain that. So we find when looking at very large data sets covering the American population that where a child grows up in America, which county they happen to grow up in, has a profound effect on their chances of moving up in the income distribution. Like what city? Atlanta is a good example of a city that's quite sprawling where there's a sharp division between where blacks and whites live, between where low income and high-income families live. And lots of cities in America look like that. Detroit is another example of a city that looks like that. Uh, and those cities, there are various reasons you might think, you know, you'd get lower mobility in those areas, lower upward mobility. One of which is kids from disadvantaged backgrounds come into less contact with children from more affluent backgrounds. They have fewer role models, fewer people to kind of look up to and see the different career paths that you might pursue. They also have less resources in their public schools. So another strong correlated factor that we find is the quality of public schools in an area. Cities that tend to have better schools for middle income families, they tend to have much better prospects for kids moving up in the income distribution. I agree 100% with the findings of this report. 
2019, we released a report, the Poverty to Prison Pipeline, where we examined the correlation and the relationship between poverty, race, and justice system involvement. And no surprise, we know that if you are poor in New York City, and especially if you are living in poverty and a person of color, there is an increased likelihood that you'll be drawn into the criminal justice system. And so we know justice involvement exasperates the already enormous challenges associated with building economic equity. And it's a double-edged sword where once you are in the criminal justice system, you are more likely to remain poor and lack economic tools to, to for mobility. And at the same time, being poor increases your risk of justice system involvement. This is not a surprise. We know that poverty is criminalized. The ACLU in New Hampshire has released a report showing the number of people that get imprisoned because they're poor and unable to pay for citations. So let's say they are guilty of a moving violation like speeding or, or rolling through a stop sign. Well, they'll get a ticket that could be worth hundreds of dollars, and if they can't pay for it, they are unfortunately imprisoned as a result. We're also joined by Janice, who is a native of Little Rock, Arkansas, has been caught up in Sherwood's hot checks department for decades. One check she wrote for $1.07 for a loaf of bread bounced. The debt ballooned after fees and fines to nearly $400. She currently has a warrant in Sherwood's hot checks department and wishes to remain anonymous for fear of arrest. On several occasions, I have been arrested by Sherwood Police Department for bounce checks, insufficient funds checks. I even been arrested on my job. How did the Ferguson protests help, in your estimation, bring attention to these practices of municipal courts in Missouri? I think it raised an issue nationally that a lot of people, myself included, were not really aware of, uh, that, that a lot of poor black people, in the case of North St. Louis County, were arrested regularly on, on minor offenses, most of them traffic-related, ended up owing money for those offenses, sometimes got arrested again if they missed a court hearing, and, and ended up in jail primarily because they couldn't afford to pay the fines and fees. What I found out in the process of researching my book is that this is a problem all across the country, and it affects poor white people in rural Missouri and Oklahoma and, and Minnesota and lots of places uh, where it's primarily poor white people and it affects poor black people in the cities and in North St. Louis County and in Columbia, South Carolina, where one of the characters of, of my book, Sasha Darby, lives. It is a massive problem all across the country. This stems way back to our history. You don't have to look too far to see examples of how poverty is criminalized in our systems and in our society. We can take, you know, for example, our social safety net system as a as a critical example of how you know we view those who are in need and those who are in need of public aid are essentially signing up for a life of being overly surveilled and our system is designed to in this example really weed out those who exploit the system or who may exploit the system where in reality the system is the one that does much of the exploiting and this is true in our history it's still true in present day back in 2018 we convened a task force of leaders from community-based organizations health and human services partners academia faith communities government as well as criminal justice system impacted individuals our analysis showed that as poverty rates increase, jail incarceration rates also increase in New York City. 
community districts and that Black and Latinx New Yorkers are more likely to be incarcerated than white and Asian New Yorkers. Again, our analysis shows that if you are poor in New York City, especially low income, there is an increased likelihood of you being drawn into the criminal justice system. One of the things we also see is that in many ways, poverty can be a predictor to incarceration, but it also is a detrimental outcome of being in the justice system as well. The report really showed us and surprised us, and it's hard to surprise us at this point with, with data, that people are really set up for a lifelong relationship with the criminal legal system. It starts very early. Over two-thirds of people in state prisons were first arrested at age 18 or younger. The average person has been arrested over nine times as well. So we know that people are coming in and out of contact with the criminal justice system over and over and over. We also calculated how many kids were arrested first as age 15 or younger, just to see what a staggering number that would be as well. We have a separate graphic for that. So that's about 40% of people in state prisons today were first arrested as, as just a kid, as a kid, and went on to be arrested an average of nine times. We also found that one in three, one in three, so that's 400,000 people, have spent time in a juvenile facility. Three in five, that's six in 10, 60% of people have spent time in jail for some other reason, at least once, but some of them have reported dozens and dozens of of jail stints. Maybe that's one night, maybe that's a week or two. But we know a short stay in jail can, can turn your life upside down. And to be cycling in and out of arrest and jail, juvenile facilities, again, is, is a damaging lifelong relationship with the criminal legal system that so obviously disrupts education, any chance at education, disrupts any chance at strong family connections, any chance at having stable employment. So it's really sort of doomed from the start. In New York, more than 27,000 16 and 17 year olds were arrested in 2015. More than 2,000 of them were convicted and spent time incarcerated. On any given day, some 716 and 17 year olds in New York are locked up in adult jails, awaiting the outcome of their cases. About 200 of them, mostly black and Latino, are at Rikers. Messiah Ramkassoon works as a program director and believes a successful transition back into society is essential in reducing recidivism. He also points to studies showing that the human brain is highly malleable up until your mid-20s, and that until that age, the parts of our brains responsible for decision-making and impulse control aren't fully developed. That 16, 17-year-old age bracket, sometimes older, the brain is still developing. So what this environment does is shapes the nature of the being. So you have young people who come out and they tell you like, I'm not afraid to go right back because part of their psyche and, and, and the way they think and you know, development of the brain has been composed behind these bars. I should say that there are people younger than 18 in adult prisons, unfortunately. The survey did not include anyone under 18, but the reality is that on any given night, there are a few thousand children in adult prisons, which is its own terrible practice. But there are over 128,000 people 18 to 24 years old in state prisons. 
this group is is at risk because developmentally the science is showing us that they're not fully fully mature. We're not saying they haven't made mistakes, but we are saying that being in state prison has no real chance at the rehabilitation that so many prisons claim to be working toward. We've shown and we've seen that that people who are young in prison adopt and adapt to the dangerous circumstances in prison and only end up recidivating at much higher rates. Um, again, that's returning to prison at higher rates and could be served just so much better, not by incarceration, but by community-based services, community-based violence prevention. When we try to consider what the impact is of justice system involvement on individuals, on families and our communities, the list is quite long, right? Like on the one hand, there's an economic impact. We're talking about a loss of income that not only limits resources to households where individuals are um, incarcerated, but on the other hand, there's also long-term consequences of barriers to employment and housing and other necessary tools for economic mobility. Equally important, but often not addressed enough is the impact of justice system involvement on children and families alike with regards to trauma and toxic stress. You know, more and more, we're relying on science that tells us that toxic stress has a real impact on children and youth brain development, their coping mechanism. An estimated 105,000 children in New York State have a parent serving time in jail or prison. And so it's a real concern in terms of what the long-term impact of this as an example and the long-term trauma that children, communities, and youth face. You've probably heard this many times before. The U.S. locks people up at a higher rate than any other country in the world. But did you know that more than half of those behind bars are parents to minors? In other words, more than 5 million children in the U.S. have had a parent who cared for them go to jail or prison. And these kids can carry significant scars with them into adulthood. Children serve time too, you know, so when their parents are incarcerated, the parents aren't the only one who are feeling that effect. It is a ripple effect. Their families, their kids are feeling that, and not only in the time that they're incarcerated, but for generations. The survey did ask a bit about history of incarceration within the family. And we found that one third of people had had a parent incarcerated at some point. That could mean that the parent is currently incarcerated as well. It's not unreasonable to think that families are incarcerated together sometimes. We were able to see when mom was incarcerated, when dad was incarcerated. We were able to see that, once again, Black incarcerated people were more likely to have a parent who was incarcerated. Again, that has all those sort of domino effects related to childhood, related to education, related to housing and socioeconomic status. So. The family disruption is, is so real. You know, I've said that prison policies come sort of second to, to community-based policies, but when it comes to having a parent in prison and being able to communicate with them and to be able to bond with them, something that we've shown through other work at Prison Policy Initiative is that prisons don't do very much in the way of being able to let families stay connected throughout someone's incarceration. It can be kind of uncomfortable to talk about 
the degree of of poverty, the degree of disadvantage that this million plus people in state prisons have, because for decades people in power have have been twisting the narrative to sort of demonize people who are on welfare, demonizing people for being quote lazy or having or just having like criminal tendencies. I mean, just just the word criminals, you know, we definitely have to put that in quotes because it's not criminals who drive prison populations. It's policy choices and our culture that has driven mass incarceration. So, you know, the data totally refute that. It's sort of an affront to the narrative that has been in place for decades, which is that there's a whole sort of swath of people who just aren't cut out for X, Y, and Z and and are deserving of of incarceration, which is of course not true. And they deserve so much better. I am Brother Cornell West. This is Chris Hedges. I'm Rosa Clemente. Hey, what's up? This is Chuck D, Public Enemy Prophets of Rage. And this is News Beat. This is a Many Faces Media production. Many Faces! You sick for this one. Sick for this one.